0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John, glory to you, Lord Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, saying, he it is that I spoke of, that the one coming after me is ranked before me because he was before me. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law came through Moses. Grace and peace came through Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And so began the Protestant Reformation. Today, well actually Tuesday, just a couple days from now, it will be exactly 500 years since that historic moment. And in these 500 years, since this nailing of those theses, these complaints, these questions, these concerns about what had been going on within the medieval church, 500 years later, one-seventh of the world's population identify as Protestants. I mean, that that moment had a big impact on the world. But my question this morning as we look at this text from Ephesians chapter 2 is why? Why did the Protestant Reformation have such an impact on our world? I mean, when you look at Luther and Calvin and Cranmer and the other reformers, these lives were... Complicated. They were mixed bags. It certainly couldn't have been just their brilliance and their own charismatic personalities that made this happen. They were conflicted, sinners saved by grace, just like you and I. Uh, for example, Martin Luther was known in his writing and in his verbiage to be bombastic, to be rude, to be unparalleled in his insults. In fact, you can go online and you can go to a website called the Luther Insulter and there's a button you can press and it says, insult me, Luther, and you press the button and it will cycle through randomly hundreds upon hundreds of these world-class insults. Luther says, you are blasphemous abominable rascals and damned scum of Satan. (laughs) Elsewhere he writes, you are like mouse droppings in the pepper. (laughs) Like this one, that even if the antichrist appears, what greater evil can he do than what you have done and do daily? I like this one. There might be a little bit lost in translation here from the German, but you are an excellent person as skillful, clever, and versed in Holy Scripture as a cow in a walnut tree or a sow on a harp. (laughs) But my favorite Luther insult of all, he says, you are like the ostrich, that foolish bird which thinks it is wholly concealed when it gets its head underground. Or, like small children who hold their hands in front of their eyes and seeing nobody, imagine that no one sees them either. In general, you are so stupid that it makes one feel like vomiting. <laughs> this is the great Martin Luther. <laughs> Clearly, it was not Luther nor any of these other reformers that made this reformation have such an impact. Why? Why did the Protestant Reformation have such an impact on the world? Historians have argued for decades, for centuries, but I would say that the reason, the fundamental reason the Protestant Reformation made such an impact on this world is because at its heart, it was about a rediscovery of grace. Grace. You see, at the heart of the Protestant Reformation was a rediscovery of the doctrine, the concept, the biblical truth of grace. The corruption and the greed of the medieval papacy had turned faith into a transactional relationship. Faith had become what you could do for God, what you could literally buy from God. You go a certain distance and God will go a certain distance. But as the Reformers read through Scripture, they heralded the cry that we read here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace. Saved by grace through faith. Grace is that beautiful, unimaginable biblical concept of an unmerited, unearned favor from God. That you can't earn God's love, you can't earn his favor, instead it's graciously given. This is the very heart of the Bible, the very heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. And wherever grace is discovered or rediscovered, the world gets changed. Wherever and whenever grace is discovered or rediscovered, whether it be in a human life, in a family, in a church, in a nation, that set of lives are changed by grace. And the church in every age, and people in every age, and I would argue us on a weekly basis, need to rediscover this concept of grace. You see, as we look at grace, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, grace declares, first of all, our incapacity. I mean, the whole concept of grace, if it's free and unmerited, means that we begin in a place of incapacitation. Grace declares that we are incapacitated before God. But not only are we incapacitated, grace then declares God's initiative. See, we're incapacitated, but then grace declares God's initiative in dealing with our incapacitation. But not only is it about our incapacitation and grace being God's initiative, but then grace becomes our intended life. It becomes the intended life we are meant to live, lives full of grace. So first, grace declares our incapacity Our text begins with a description of humanity's condition before Jesus. What is our condition before the gospel? Well, it's not a pretty picture. Chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which he once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I mean, it's really not a pretty picture. We were dead. In our trespasses and sins, we are walking around dead in those trespasses and sins. This is why I've told many people I really love zombie literature. And and, and I know people roll their eyes at me when I say that. But seriously, I think it's high art. You're like, where are you going with this? It's a picture of our life before Christ. Whether the the creators of the walking dead realize that they're laying out Ephesians chapter 2. We're walking around, it kind of looks like you're alive, but you're in fact spiritually dead. And children of wrath. It's a harsh picture. I was at a um, international students gathering a number of years ago in Ottawa. We had a, uh, we sponsor these events a couple times a year during major Christian holidays, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, and we'd gather international students from the campus. And, and the whole idea was a sort of a soft sell evangelism moment to bring them in, feed them a meal, and talk just a little bit about the good news of God in Christmas. And so I was the speaker one year, so Monica and I and the girls went and I got up and gave my very, very short Christmas, uh, you know, gospel and, and sat back down. And the guy across from the table from me, very friendly, uh, but, but quite pointed, said, so you're a Christian? And I said, yep. And he said, so you think I'm a sinner? And he said, I just don't feel that that's true about who I am. And without thinking of it much, I said, yes, you do. He said, no, I don't. I said, yes, you do. I don't think I'm a sinner. Yes, you do. And then I told him the story about what happened back in 1910. Some of you know this story where uh, the, the Times of London put out a, uh, a request for articles. Authors could write in articles on what is wrong with the world. Right? What's wrong with the world? And all these authors sent these various articles in. But there was one article that came in. And it read like this. It said, dear sirs, in answer to your question, what is wrong with the world? I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. His response to the question, what is wrong with the world, is I am. And I said to that young man, I said, does that resonate with you? And he said, it does. And I said, it resonates because you and I both know at the core of who we are that there's something broken. There's something wrong in us. We do not live the way we want to live. We desire to do better, but we don't ultimately do better in our lives. And so there's something very, very wrong with us. As Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the resulting status there before God, before Christ, is that we are incapacitated. We cannot fix it. We're stuck. Which leads us to God's initiative. See, grace doesn't just declare our incapacity but grace then declares God's initiative. See, the next two words in Ephesians in verse four, I think, sum up the entire gospel. The entire gospel is summed up in this. Paul has just said in those first few verses, we were dead in our sins, we're children of wrath, incapacitated. And then verse four, but God. The entire gospel is summed up in those two words. But God. We can't do anything about it. We are broken and done for, but God. It's the language of initiative. God, when we were incapacitated, took the initiative to move. But God, verse four says, who being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I mean, that word grace, charis, at its root, I love the fact that grace at its root means to incline towards. That's what grace means. It's it's the posture of leaning in. But at the very root of what grace means, it means that God, when he looks at a sinful incapacitated human being, he inclines towards us. Not away, not in repulsion, but towards us. He reaches out his hand. He inclines. He moves. He makes the initiative. God makes the initiative, and it's total initiative because we were dead, incapacitated. All the initiative is on him. Grace leaning in, inclining in the posture of God's heart. Ezekiel 37 has this amazing picture of the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel has shown this vision of a a valley with these these bones left over from an army and, and, and we're told the bones were very dry and they were very white. And God says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel gives the only response that is appropriate. He says, only you know, O Lord. And the Lord says, prophesy to the bones and he does, and as he speaks over the bones, the bones stand up, come back together, flesh and sinews form on them, and suddenly there is a living army standing before Ezekiel. That's where that song, Dem bones, dem bones them, draw bones." That's where that comes from. Ezekiel 37. It's an amazing picture. A number of years ago, we had our kids looking through an action Bible which is kind of like a comic book version of the Bible. So you flip through and it kind of gives comic book pictures and versions of the Bible stories. And one of our kids was looking at this and it was, it was pretty graphic. And, and one of our daughters said, Daddy, did this really happen? And, and I kind of put on my theologian dad hat And I said, well, you know, we don't quite know whether Ezekiel was actually in the valley or whether it was a vision he was given. I mean, the Hebrew is not that clear in the passage. And the kids are looking at me like, what are you talking about? From the bedroom across the hallway, I hear Monica shout out, it happens every time a person turns to the Lord. Oftentimes my wife is a better theologian than I am. (laughs) And it's true. The picture of Ezekiel 37 is the picture of this dry bones, these dead people becoming alive. And every time a person turns to the Lord, we see Ezekiel 37 lived out, dead becoming alive, a resurrection moment. As Tim Keller says, Jesus did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. We were dead, and yet God in his initiative comes and makes us alive. By grace, you have been saved. John 1, which I read just a few moments ago, tells us this picture of Jesus being the crowning picture of grace in Scripture. The crowning moment, the decisive moment. We read in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, as Jesus did for us what we could not do on our own, he was in fact taking all the initiative. He was bringing that grace into our lives. But we have to be careful, because when we read passages like that, we can think, oh, grace appeared for the first time in the New Testament, as if grace wasn't a concept we see throughout scripture. I've even seen, heard people say that grace was something that was discovered for the first time in the Protestant Reformation. And it wasn't, the reformers were simply rediscovering what had been lost that the early church had always believed. But it's not just that grace is a New Testament concept, we see grace at the very heart of God right from the beginning, right from the beginning of scripture. You look back to Exodus chapter 20, the moment when the 10 commandments are given. In that moment, uh, we see grace on display in such a huge way and it's all about how you count the 10 commandments. You see, a Jewish person will tell you that what we call the 10 commandments, traditionally they would call the 10 words, the Decalogue, the 10 words. And the reason they say that is that it will affect how we number those commandments. If I was to say to you right now, what's the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? What's the first word? Charlton Heston comes down the mountain, what's at number one? You shall have no other gods before me, right? But that's not actually. You see, the first word, according to traditional Jewish teaching, the first word of the Ten Words is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Israel, out of the house of Egypt." Word two, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, in a Jewish mindset, the first word is the word of what God has already done. It's the word of grace. Do you see it? You see, the Ten Commandments are not about live these ten rules and then I will be your Savior. Then I will be your God. No, the Ten Commandments tell us, the Ten Words tell us from the beginning I have already saved you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Israel, out of the house of slavery. I've already rescued you. I've already shown you to be my, me to be your Savior. And now you shall have no other gods before me. Now you shall follow me. Now you shall live in response to my gracious love. Long before you ever were asking for it, I came and rescued you. Grace at the very heart of God goes right back to the beginning. His heart is always inclined towards us in grace. God's relationship with us is not ever transactional. I'll do a little, God will do a little. God's grace, God's heart for us is grace. He takes the initiative. Romans 5, 8 says that while we, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is a good fisherman. He knows that you got to get the fish in the boat first before you can clean them. He takes the initiative. He brings us home. But see, grace is not just about our incapacity. A rediscovery of grace is not just about His initiative, but Grace. Ultimately, then, is about our intended purpose, our intended life, the way we're to live our lives. Verse eight, which I read just a moment ago, eight to 10 says these words, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I know I quote verse 10 a lot. We are his workmanship. Because what Paul is declaring is, let's be really clear. You are not saved by your works. You're saved by grace. You're saved by his initiative. You're not saved by your works, but you are saved for works. You see, we get so hung up on making sure we don't have a works-based salvation that often we can miss the fact that once God has rescued us, he's intending for us to live lives of good works. His workmanship, I've said before, it's one of my favorite words in Greek. I think I said it last Sunday. I'll keep talking about it. It's the word poema. And you see in that word poema, the word poem. And that's what it means. God is saying he comes into our lives, he inclines towards us, he takes the initiative, he saves us by his grace, and then he turns us into works of art, his poetry, his works of art in the world, his masterpieces in the world. And what are those poems, those masterpieces, those works of art declaring? They're living and declaring grace. You see, what God has done is he's shown us his grace and then is calling us to reflect that grace in our world. We're to live gracious lives with those around us. We are recipients of grace who then live out that grace. We don't continue. We're not to continue the world's transactional, merit-based relationships. Can you think of the people in your life right now Think of your family and your neighbors. Think of your coworkers. Imagine if grace stood at the center of each of those relationships. Imagine if you were so captured by the grace that's been shown you that grace would overflow grace upon grace into those relationships around you. That would change the world. My favorite moment. In uh, Les Misérables um, is where Valjean, who you know is this Jean Valjean, is this is this um, paroled criminal who has never been shown an ounce of grace in his life, and on parole he he lodges one night with a bishop, and in desperation he steals and he steals the silver, but he gets caught and. As he's brought to the bishop, the people that grabbed him, the entire story of that man's life is changed. He's captured for this silver, and as the arresting party brings them to the bishop, they say, tell tell his reverence your story. Let us see if he's impressed. You were lodging here last night. You were the honest bishop's guest. And then out of Christian goodness, when he learned about your plight, you maintained he made a present of this silver. And then the bishop says, that is right, but my friend, you left so early. Something surely slipped your mind. You forgot I gave these also. Candlesticks. Would you leave the best behind, so messieurs you may release him, for this man has spoken true, I commend you for your duty and God's blessing go with you. And remember this, my brother, see in this some higher plan, you must use this precious silver to become. An honest man, by the witness of the martyrs, by his passion and his blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. And I am weeping like a baby. I am sitting there with like snot on my sleeve, running down my face. Why am I weeping, bawling at that moment that changes everything in that story? Because I'm beholding the church living a gracious life in the world. I'm beholding in that moment the church doing and living the way it's meant to live, not transactionally, not based on what the other has done for me, but rather graciously inclining towards those who do not deserve it and showing that grace. As George MacDonald once said, he said, the world can do almost anything as well or better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses or feed the hungry or heal the sick, there's only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. Valjean discovered grace and his life became a reflection of that grace to those around him. Because wherever grace is discovered or rediscovered, our lives are changed. Where is grace today in your life? Where is grace in my life? Do you need a rediscovery of grace? Or maybe a discovery of grace for the first time? You know, this is why we gather every Sunday. This is why we do what we do. Word and sacrament, worship together. Because every week we need a reminder of the grace that has been poured out in our lives. Every week we need to come and hear that grace spoken over us and then called forward to this table and kneel before the Lord and literally receive that grace afresh. This is my body given for you, this is my blood shed for you. That we can be reminded and refilled with that grace for the purpose that we could be sent out and live the intended life that God has given us. Grace in our homes, grace in our schools, grace in our workplaces, grace in this church, grace everywhere that God's people go. Why did the Protestant Reformation change the world? Because grace, a rediscovery of grace was at its center. Why will you and I in Christ's church change this world around us? as we discover and rediscover grace and allow the Lord to live it out, reflected in our lives. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, gracious living, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.